You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the RoomNow faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, my name is Akil Sood, reporting for RoomNow from Galveston, Texas. Today, I want to talk about real-time monitoring of disease flares in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. The abstracts I'll be pointing out are abstract 811 and abstract 373. Patients with rheumatoid arthritis typically experience disease flares. Knowing the frequency, severity, and duration of these flares is important to understand disease activity. In a routine follow-up visit, such information may be limited by recall. What if there was a better way to monitor disease activity in real time? As Abstract 811 points out, there's an app for that. The Remora study, which stands for Remote Monitoring of Rheumatoid Arthritis, has developed a smartphone app to monitor disease activity in real time. By tracking daily symptoms, they're able to accurately capture disease flares. This can help clinicians determine the next steps in management of their rheumatoid arthritis. And while not all patients need to have a smartphone app, certain patients may benefit. In Abstract 373, which focuses on patients with ankylosing spondylitis, patients that were older and had high disease activity were more likely to adhere to the smartphone app. In conclusion, the use of smartphone apps in the field of rheumatology are broad. Mobile health apps can be another powerful intervention in the management of rheumatic disease. For more coverage, please go to RoomNow. Thank you. Hello, this is Eric Ruderman from Northwestern in Chicago, and I am here with Room Now at ACR Convergence 2021, uh, day three of the main meeting. Um, this is another perspective in psoriatic arthritis, and I thought I would talk today about an abstract that, while negative, is likely to get a lot of interest. Um, I don't know about anybody else watching this, um, but Illinois is a medical use marijuana state and also has adult recreational use. And I can't go a day in clinic without several patients asking me about whether they should use marijuana or CBD or something along those lines. It's kind of the new glucosamine chondroitin, frankly. Um, and so the, so the abstract that really caught my attention um, was a presentation today um, uh, oh shoot, I have the abstract number in front of me in a second, and now I am losing it. Uh, abstract is, sorry, 1456. Um, cannabidiol as an add-on analgesic therapy for patients with hand OA and psoriatic arthritis. So not specifically psoriatic arthritis, but they included patients um, who had either osteoarthritis of the hand or psoriatic arthritis of the hand that was not active. So this was really a pain study. Um, they had just about uh, 140 patients or so, and they were randomized to daily CBD. Uh, it was a, a sort of synthetic CBD tablet uh, versus placebo for 12 weeks. The primary endpoint was pain reduction um, at 12 weeks and surprise, nothing. The uh, cannabidiol uh, led to no greater improvement uh, than placebo with about 20% in each group getting uh, some reduction in pain intensity um, and about 50% reduction in pain in about a quarter of the patients in each group, whether uh, CBD or placebo. 
They looked at a variety of secondary endpoints, PROs and depression and, and other things, and none of those were improved as well. It was pretty clearly a negative study. Now, the authors commented that perhaps this was because they didn't use the right dose, uh, or there may have been other uh, medications on board that may have uh, abrogated any effect of CBD, uh, but you can't really get away from the fact that there was literally no response at all. Um, this is an important question, and, and negative or not, I don't know that this is going to change what happens with the patients, and, I, and I'm trying to figure out how I deal with this in my practice. I get people ask me about this all the time, um, and it's now, based on this, a bit like what we've always done with um, supplements or nutraceuticals, where you say, well, you know, I'm not sure it's going to help, but it's not likely to hurt you. And, this, and the CBD is pretty benign in most of the studies where it's been looked at, um, but there's a cost to it. And is it worth spending the money? And I think looking at this, even though I've told people before, go ahead and try. And, and when I tell them um, that I'll sign off on a medical marijuana card, I always say, make sure you get the stuff that has more CBD, because that's the one, that's the ingredient that's been associated with pain control. I, now I can say, you know, I don't know, and, and it may not be worth the money. It may be worth it if they're um, sort of motivated to try it for a few weeks um, and see what happens, but uh, I don't think longstanding uh, will respond. Now, I think the important thing uh, also to consider is placebo response, and one of the things this study shows is that it's really important to have a placebo group in a study. There's a huge placebo response in OA. There's a huge placebo response in, in pain studies. Um, and without that, you might've said, well, some patients did better, but seeing the placebo tells you it's not the drug, it's just the act of being in the study. Uh, finally, I wanna close, there was another abstract um, presented today that um, sort of shed some light on this, or is at least relevant to this. Um, and that is, I'm trying to get the abstract number for you. I didn't have it pulled up, I apologize. Abstract number uh, 1777, and this is from the a forward registry from the National Data Bank of Rheumatic Diseases. Um, and really the, the highlight of this was the large number of patients with psoriatic arthritis who are taking opioids. Um, over 20% of patients in their registry were taking opioids for psoriatic arthritis, which highlights the important need for something to control pain in these patients. And what a hope that CBD might've been a more benign way to do this, doesn't seem to be. Um, we'll see how it goes and whether anybody continues to look at this. Uh, for more information, stay tuned to Room Now during the Convergence meeting this year, uh, and thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida, presenting for RoomNow.com at ACR Convergence 2021. Abstract number 1325 from Dr. Riojas Herrera et al. looked at osteoporosis and psoriatic arthritis patients. So the researchers completed a cross-sectional study of 155 psoriatic arthritis patients who also had had DEXA scans. At the beginning of this particular study, the average age was 47. The mean time to DEXA diagnosis was 10 years. So patients had had disease and symptoms for 10 years and 50% of these patients were females. 84 patients were found to be osteopenic on that baseline DEXA and 19 were found to be osteoporotic. Now, interestingly, of those patients who are osteoporotic, femoral neck osteoporosis was found to be more frequent and more frequent in men. Investigators also found that femoral neck osteoporosis was also more frequently found in patients who had axial involvement, who had a history of hypertension, a history of ischemic heart disease, and vitamin D deficiency. So this is a relatively young population of patients. 
And we don't usually discuss bone densities in these patients early. So there remain a lot of questions. It was a small study, but we need to understand if there's a component of disease severity, whether we need to know more about steroid use in these particular patients, some of those other baseline characteristics that would be really important. But when you look at the data from this particular standpoint, it's important to know that we should be discussing osteoporosis with our psoriatic arthritis patients early. So my question to you is, does this make you think differently about how you approach your PSA patients in terms of osteoporosis? Let me know on Twitter, add up to Tate. And of course, for more ACR Convergence 2021, go to roomnow.com. Hi, this is Bella Mehta reporting for New Room Now from New York uh, for the ACR 21 Convergence. We have with us Megan Close, who is well known for her work in lupus pregnancies and lupus uh, overall. And here's, um, <clears throat> and we discuss one of her abstracts, uh, which is patient, patient perspectives on two distinct patterns of uh, type 2 lupus symptoms. The abstract number is 1277. So Megan, uh, this is interesting work. I I always wonder uh, what is type 1 and type 2 lupus? How do you distinguish it? I, I know this work was done by uh, a couple of years ago, but it would be nice to have your insights. Absolutely. So a couple of years ago, our group came up with this concept of type 1 and 2 lupus, really because you know, it grew out of our frustration of um, us feeling like we have lupus under control, but patients continuing to feel really poorly. So we started measuring disease activity and patient-reported measures um, and uh, really saw that they seemed to be pretty independent, that uh, the, the uh, level of disease activity that the patient um, reported um, often didn't match what the doctor said. So what we called type 1 lupus is really kind of what all of us sort of classically were taught was lupus, which is, you know, inflammation in the joints, the skin, the kidneys, that kind of stuff, stuff we measure and mark on, on, our, on our tests. Um, and then uh, Type two is more often what the patient reports, which is actually fatigue, myalgias, uh, brain fog, really just feeling crummy, sort of this like flu-like feeling that so many of our patients just live with. So, um, so we started measuring both of them and have really found some interesting patterns from that. So in this qualitative study, what did you find? Um, how did you, I mean, maybe you wanted to know more, get into more depth in this? Absolutely. So, you know, we were really um, curious as to sort of what type two lupus really felt like to patients and how they experienced it. And so um, we did an interview with 42 patients with all different types of sort of type one and two lupus activity, high, low, both of them together, one at a time. And, um, and then we did deep analysis. Um, we had two rheumatologists as well as uh, an, an epidemiologist who did the interviews and is very well versed in lupus in our group read through them all very carefully. And from that, we really were able to kind of pick out two patterns of type two lupus that um, we, we suspect um, it feels better as two types actually. So there's one that is um, the kind of, uh, it, it goes up and down with um, type one lupus. So when they're lupus nephritis and they're, you know, is really active and they're really, really sick and they're getting admitted to the hospital, they're having a lot of pain, they're having a lot of fatigue, they feel really terrible. So there's that kind of type two, what we now are calling intermittent type two. And then there's more persistent type two, which seems to be completely independent of type one lupus. And it's just, they are always feel kind of crummy. Um, and sometimes they feel really crummy and sometimes they just feel kind of achy tired. Um, and that one we call persistent now because it just sort of seems to always be there. Even when you get their lupus, 
um, inflammation under really good control. So when we really sort of picked out these two patterns, we now hypothesize that maybe they have two different causes, that maybe the one that kind of comes with the lupus activity and then goes away um, is maybe more inflammatory. And then the kind that just comes and stays, maybe that's less inflammatory. True. And that's the one that is very difficult to treat and like manage. Um, you know, almost some of us label some of these patients as fibro type symptoms with lupus. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you want uh, a rheumatologist or patients to take from this? Yeah. So we used to call this fibromyalgia in our clinic. And what we found was that, you know, we would tell people, oh, this isn't your lupus. Your lupus is really good. This is your fibromyalgia. This isn't your lupus. Your labs are fine. Right. And that was really disempowering to our patients. And it didn't match with their lived experience. Like all of our patients say that the fatigue, myalgia, the brain fog is their lupus, right? That's, that's their lived experience. It, maybe it all came up at the same time. I don't know, but that's, they all firmly feel that it's their lupus. And so this back and forth of it's not your lupus, it's something else, um, just led in our clinic to a lot of discontent between both doctors and patients, right? We just felt exhausted at the end of the day, um, sort of almost fighting with our patients. So we really found that this, this language really kind of gets us all on the same side, right? And we still sort of say, you know, your type one lupus you know, looks great. And that's such good news. And you're taking your medicine and your labs are looking great. You still have this type two lupus. And and I know everybody wants me to tell them what to do for it. I I don't have the perfect solution for it. I do the same stuff that everybody else does, you know, exercise and um, therapy and, you know, sometimes antidepressants, that kind of thing. But, um, but we found that just a change in the language and really sort of like getting on their side of like, this is a, a really a part of their lived lupus experience um, has really changed our relationships with our patients and, and their receptiveness to our suggestions actually is definitely better when we couch it in the words of lupus. No, I totally agree. I think lupus patients uh, sometimes have this frustration that is going on for many years, um, doing qualitative studies like this, getting into the depth of what the patients feel, uh, getting into the patient reported outcome measures is definitely important. Um, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and please follow us some more at Room Now. And this is uh, Bella underscore Meta uh, if you want to follow on Twitter. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Aurélie Najm from Glasgow. Uh, reporting for Run Now at ICR, ACR 2021. Today, I have the great privilege to be with Professor Ernest Choi. Um, we, we from Cardiff. We had, you know, during this conference, a lot of um, data coming about jack inhibitor safety, uh, especially to facilitate with the oral surveillance um, data presented yesterday at the plenary session. So, um, what are your thoughts on on all these? Uh, so, uh, so number one, I think in order to interpret the oral surveillance data, we should understand the trial in context. So obviously oral surveillance is a safety trial. So, and it is event driven and it's looking at potential adverse event in a high risk group of patients. So it, it is selective high-risk patients, so it's not absolutely 100% representative of every single patient that we see in clinical settings. So that is an important context. 
The second thing uh, is that the safety signal was in comparison with TNF inhibitor. And I think in the session we just heard from the FDAs, some of the thinking and guidance is based on the fact that if one has a choice between JAK inhibitor and TNF inhibitor, with the current level of evidence, they are giving a guidance that perhaps we should try a TNF inhibitor first. And in the session, they were pretty clear. They think that JAK inhibitors should be used after TNF inhibitor failure patients. So that provides the context of benefit versus harm. Uh, I think it's also important to say that my interpretation of the oral surveillance data is that uh, the relative risk against TNF inhibitor was shown in the study against a various uh, number of adverse events, but the absolute risk remains very small. So there's a relative increased risk compared with TNF inhibitor, but if you look at the absolute event rate, it is still small. So it's a manageable risk. So in the patient, who you don't have a choice of choosing TNF inhibitor, the choice of a JAK inhibitor would be appropriate because the, the benefit outbreak the small increase in risk. And I think this is the FDA's interpretation of the risk. So it's not that it is an enormously risky drug that we need to withdraw the treatment. Um, obviously, we need to think about what do we do in high-risk patients, patients who have a previous uh, risk factor. And I think that depends on what the patient had tried before. So we all know that some patients are highly refractory, they have tried multiple treatment. If they're getting benefit, and as long as they understand there is a small increase in risk, the patient may choose to continue with treatment, just accepting that, that risk because untreated RA is associated with higher mortality and mobility. So that's a, that is one extreme. But if the patient has lots of risk factors and there are other options, then the choice is a different one. So I think ultimately this is going to be a decision based on shared decision-making between clinicians and patients. It's not that JAK inhibitors are all bad. Uh, there's some risk, like all treatment, is about how to assess the benefit versus the risk. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I'm gonna be like almost a bit provocative here, but can we even compare what based on what you were saying, not based on what you're saying, but like thinking of the idea that uh, it's compared to TNF inhibitors. Could we not consider maybe or suppose that maybe TNF inhibitors reduce cardiovascular risk and maybe not JAK inhibitors increase it? Would that be uh, something we could maybe consider? What do you think about that? Well, that is a very good point. And obviously there are lots of evidence that TNF inhibitors do reduce uh, cardiovascular risk. Um, so it is fair enough to say that perhaps the effect of JAK inhibitors on cardiovascular prevention is only marginally less than TNF in inhibitor. That would be uh, one uh, interpretation. I think slightly more challenging would be to think about the other side effect profile like VTE or, uh, or malignancy. So I think because it's not just one particular side effect profile, but a number of risk factor is a little bit hard. But what you said is definitely true, that active rheumatoid arthritis is associated with many risk factors, increased cardiovascular mortality, people can get infections and they can have increased risk of lymphoproliferative disease. So because our surveillance 
is a relative comparison. We don't have a placebo-treated patient in this group. Uh, it, it, is, it is why they decided that it's, it's not bad enough for us to think about it's such a bad drug, we need to withdraw it. But yeah. if you have an option, then perhaps you should try TNF inhibitor first. Definitely. No, thank you. And I think it's great also that you have these insights, you know, from uh, maybe uh, regulatory um, bodies as well. Uh, I'm wondering, so should we uh, maybe start thinking about stratifying our patients in our practice when it comes to, you know, first drug or maybe after a biologic failure? Shall we think, oh, right, maybe in that patient that is, you know, 65 years old, smoker, maybe we should go for a second biologic and not a jack inhibitor. Could that be something that we would need to implement maybe in practice? Well, definitely at the ACR, we saw many subgroup analysis of oral surveillance and patients who are at high risk of adverse event tend to at high risk. So older patients and there are many subgroup analysis of patients who are over 50, who are smokers, who seem to have a higher risk. Um, and of course, we know that people who have a previous adverse event are always at risk of another serious adverse event. And in fact, uh, we, we presented a study a few days ago looking at whether inflammatory arthritis patients are at risk of in, uh, severe outcome. And guess what? If they have a previous serious infection, it automatically predicts them having a worse outcome. It's, 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 it's a slightly uh, sort of scientifically intuitive argument. If you're at risk, then you're always at greater risk. So, so I think that is a very good question. I think the, the, the issue is that we don't have an absolute threshold because many of our patients have multiple risk factors. So they don't always operate on its own. So I think at this moment in time, we know some of the risk factors and it's going to be something that we need to work on. I mean, for sure, uh, getting patients to lose weight, getting them to stop smoking is going to be very important for the general health. I should also emphasize that I think in the FDA's discussion, they are not saying that they know for sure that uh, the, this side effect in oral surveillance is considered a class effect. But what, what they have said is that because they share similar, of, similar mechanism of action, at least some, then until there are definitive evidence that this is not a class effect, they will consider it as a class effect at this moment in time. Right, that is a very important point, actually. Thank you for raising that. Um, I, I just for our audience, very briefly, I realized that I have not given any abstract numbers. So very briefly uh, for everyone, uh, oral surveillance yesterday on uh, maize and, and TOFA was abstract uh, 958. And tomorrow, um, oral surveillance on cancer is 1940, and on MVT is 1941. Um, and uh, I mean, um, Professor Shari, thank you so much. Okay, you're welcome. Nice talking to you. Okay, likewise. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Hi, my name is Akhil Sood, reporting from now from Galveston, Texas. Today, I want to talk about herpes zoster and rheumatoid arthritis. Patients with rheumatoid arthritis are at increased risk for herpes zoster. Herpes zoster, or shingles, is caused by reactivation of the varicella zoster virus. Shingles can be extremely painful and debilitating. And this leads to the question, what is the clinical and economic impact 
of herpes zoster in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. As abstract 981 by Singer and colleagues explored in this question using a large administrative claims database, they identified patients with herpes zoster and rheumatoid arthritis, as well as rheumatoid arthritis alone for comparison. And the outcomes measured were healthcare resource utilization and healthcare cost. And the results were striking. Up to one year from the time of diagnosis, patients with rheumatoid arthritis and herpes zoster had greater healthcare resource utilization. This included visits to the emergency room, visits to the clinic, and visits to the hospital. And healthcare costs were also significantly greater. What can we take away from these findings? Prevention of herpes zoster is extremely important. And as clinicians, we need to ensure our patients are up to date with immunizations. For more coverage, please go to roomnow.com. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes, a rheumatologist from the Philippines, reporting for Room Now at the virtual ACR 2021. I found an interesting study on frailty and lupus by the group of Dr. Sarah Lieber, that's abstract number 869, on the comparison of two frailty definitions in women with SLE. They determined the pre prevalence of frailty using two definitions, the Freed definition and the Slick Frailty Index, and compared whether there was agreement between these two metrics. 67 patients were analyzed in this study. Results show a moderate agreement between the two measures. Frailty was present in 18% and 27% of patients according to the FREED index and the SLIC-FI respectively. According to the FREED index, frail women were older, had greater comorbidities, and more likely to have smoked in their lifetime. On the other hand, according to the SLIC-FI, frail women had greater disease damage than non-frail women. They also reported that Frail women had worse promise scores and greater self-reported disability using either definition. It may be quite difficult to really compare both measures directly because they have been constructed differently and further studies with a larger sample size might be needed to elucidate associations. Nevertheless, by identifying frailty and among female lupus patients using either definition, timely interventions can be given that can improve quality of life. Follow me on Twitter at Rumarampa and tune in to roomnow.com for more coverage of the ACR Convergence 2021. Thank you. Thank you. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. I'm at ACR 2021 Convergence, and I am so excited to introduce to you a new field in rheumatology, geriatric rheumatology. It's an area of high need, but very limited attention. And I have my friend and colleague, Dr. Una McCreese, as well as a lot of her buddies who have been so instrumental in getting this field to move forward. I'll have each of you introduce yourselves, your area of interest in particular, and um, what you're doing so far. Una, would you like to leave? Sure, my name is Una McCreese. I'm an associate professor at UT Southwestern. Medical Center and the Dallas VA. I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you, Catherine. And thank you to my colleagues for being here and making such an exciting ACR 2021 where aging has featured so prominently. I have been passionate about the intersection of rheumatology and geriatrics 
for, for my career. And I focus on musculoskeletal pain and comorbid depression in older adults. And we've developed a novel behavioral intervention to improve outcomes that matter most for older adults. Great, what about you, Catherine? Hi, I'm Catherine Weisham. I'm at the VA Puget Sound and I'm junior, junior faculty at the University of Washington. Um, I'm interested in osteoporosis, which tends to be a disease of older people. Um, and in diving deeper into osteoporosis, I, I became very interested in the concept of frailty. Um, and with um, some collaborations and discussions with Una and Deviani and Sebastian, um, I've really become more and more interested in aging as a general concept. Um, it's very applicable to my, my patient population at the VA. So starting to become a more of a passion in this group is very wonderful. Um, so with this, maybe I can hand it off to Sebastian. Hi, so I'm Sebastian Satui. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, and uh, I direct the Vasculitis Center here. So this is kind of my, I guess, how I joined this group because I, my particular focus is in kind of treatment and outcomes of patients with vasculitis and PMR. And um, I got constantly reminded of kind of the age group that I, that I deal with in clinic every day, the needs for this, uh, for our patients that go way past and beyond what we conceive as typical outcomes of our diseases. So that's how I became particularly interested in frailty and other age-related outcomes as well, such as cognition. And I found a hope in, uh, in this group. So this is kind of a little bit of the work they were doing and pushing forward. Deviani, go for it. I am Deviani Mishra. I am an assistant professor at the Harvard Medical School. I'm a geriatrician and a rheumatologist, so I'm double-boarded. And um, it is very natural for me to marry the two divisions, uh, you know, the two uh, uh, fields of geriatrics and rheumatology in what I practice as well as where uh, what I research. So my particular interest is in uh, geriatric outcomes of uh, functional limitation and frailty in patients with osteoarthritis. So could you all tell our viewers why it's important for rheumatologists to learn about aging? And I'm just gonna throw this out to everybody. Start. I, I think it's important um, to just recognize in our clinical practice, we're seeing more and more older adults. And my question always is, are we prepared as the rheumatology workforce to adequately and appropriately take care of our aging patients? And that's where I've learned so much from our geriatrics colleagues and experts. What can we adapt and take from the geriatrics field, apply it in rheumatology in order to improve outcomes for this rapidly rising population? You're absolutely right. I mean, not only are we, um you know, our patients getting older, we are too. And some of the things that you are going to be mentioning today probably is something that we can take with us as well as for the other population groups as well. So um, how can we improve care for the older rheumatology patient? I think that's through creating awareness how the needs of geriatric patients are different from uh, the young adult patients we take care of. Um, the unique challenges uh, a provider faces when taking care of an older adult, and uh, how do we tailor treatment um, according to the comorbidities that come with aging? And also, more importantly, sometimes I think we will briefly be touching on it, um, the ageism part where we just assume that older patients do not want treatment, but 
actually we should be asking them what their goals are, what matters the most to them and tailor the treatment according to what matters most to them. Can you go more into the five M's? Absolutely, we've emphasized that quite a bit during ACR now. Um, and let me just recap what the five M's are. Um, an age-friendly healthcare system often adopts the five M's. The five M's of aging include multi-complexity. It includes what matters most to patients because really our values and priorities change as we get older. It includes mobility where we talk about ambulation and we talk about fall risk. It includes medications and polypharmacy, potentially deprescribing. Um, and it includes mentation. Mentation encompasses um, comorbid depressive symptoms and anxiety, as well as delirium and dementia and the whole spectrum of cognitive impairment, which has been highlighted um, in several abstract and plenary sessions um, during this ACR 2021. Catherine, um, I mean, like, I, I get the five ends, but I want your perspective. Like, how are we as clinicians able to incorporate all that when we have such a limited time with our patient? I mean, we have to go through, you know, their medicines, and then we have to check their labs and make sure they're vaccinated, talk to them about COVID. <laughs> Give me some hints here. Yeah, I I find that it weaves its way into practice. You know, you can you get to know your patient you get them stable with your primary goal, which is their disease. But as you're, as you're working with them, you're talking about what are their preferences? What, why are we treating them? What do they want to do after they're you know, feeling much better? Um, and that breeds more and more kind of conversations about how can I get you as functional as possible? How do I, um, with COVID, I talked to my patients about social isolation. How do we navigate social isolation for my patients? How do we find safe spaces for them to interact and to get back into their communities. So I find that these things happen naturally and you have to just kind of pick up on it, spend a little time on it, you know, compare and address your pressing needs, the patient needs. And then I always add one kind of healthcare maintenance tool into each visit as we, you know, as we get through the initial treatment of disease activity. So I think it's something if we had more time, if we had this wonderful multifaceted geriatrics clinic, we could probably be more effective but I think it's something that naturally we can chip away at over time. I think it's important because we have, like, we all know we have the opportunity that we end up seeing our patients way more frequently than a lot of, than a lot of other providers. So when there are at the beginning of the disease where they're having a flare, we keep such a close communication. And I think we can really kind of take that opportunity. And the same way as I, when I see a GCA patient and I know which symptoms I go through, I go through medications and we have all these scripts that we have, it's just inserting these other factors that have been so successfully implemented in geriatric care that we can just bring it into our practice. And I think like Catherine said, it just becomes something very natural uh, as for me, just like asking for like drug medication, PMR symptoms and you know headaches and stuff like that. It's just something else to add on, which challenging, but it, I think naturally it can become and it's such important for our patients as well. Sebastian, I, I just want to piggyback on that. I actually think we often ask all of the five M's. It's integrated in what we do, but it's a reframing uh, of this in the context of almost like a checklist for aging. Um, maybe we don't ask often enough what matters most to you, but in the social history or in the you know uh, HPI, I, I think it naturally comes 
in, you know, what are the things you enjoy doing? And in my mind, I'm already trying to frame the management plan around that, you know, so in that way, it motivates the patient to engage and do what we want them to do. It improves their outcomes, most importantly, um, to engage in these conversations. Yeah, and we need buy-in too. We need buy-in from everybody because like I've sent a patient to physical therapy, but then the therapist is like, sorry, we can't help them. Like they don't see any room for improvement. I mean, how how are you going to address that if not everybody's on board? I think that goes um, in both directions. Who is your physical therapist? Number one, we talk a lot about developing interdisciplinary teams and finding the right team members who are comfortable with musculoskeletal pain, inflammatory arthritis, and aging. And then also, you know, just referring a patient somewhere when they're not ready to go or they may not perceive that this is an issue you know, we're often not uh, effective. So gauging um, buy-in, as you said, Catherine, and and motivating our patient to get there makes a big difference. Deviane, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, could you, you had mentioned ageism before. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I'm, you know, I I know it's kind of discriminatory when you use that word, but give us an idea of what you're talking about. I think we had a discussion at the Aging Hub uh, yesterday. Um, Like any other ism, ageism is a problem. And it's uh, highlighted by the WHO now because it is a growing problem and it's across all, you know, all continents, all countries. And uh, what it is basically by definition is a stereotype or a prejudice or discrimination based on age. And it doesn't always mean too old. It also refers to too young. But our older adults uh, are better burnt because of the um, how deep it percolates both in individual level, at societal level, and everyday life and healthcare. So that's what I was alluding to when I said the um, ageism in medicine, like we never ask our patients how aggressive you want us to be in terms of treating them, perhaps I gave an example yesterday, how 94-year-old woman and my colleague asked, how do I treat her? And my response was, how would you treat a 54-year-old with gout? So same with them. And how the patient has done great on steroid uh, taper for acute gout and allopurinol for uh, tophaceous gout. So it's it's that stereotype I'm talking about, not just in the society, but in the medical field. And, and I'd love to, uh, oh, oh, sorry, Katie, go ahead. I was a quick um, add on from a data standpoint as we're you know, looking at frailty in different data sets. And you see, even though uh, in the frail group that they may not be, um, glucocorticoids may be more harmful in these folks, you see a higher use of glucocorticoids and a lower use of DMARDs and biologics. And I think we all have had a patient interaction where we're afraid of the known outcome of infection and for some reason, there's this inherent comfort with glucocorticoids. And so we may not be treating our older patients in the safest way. Um, so really kind of stepping back and really thinking about, is this patient someone who can tolerate a biologic uh, for some of our hard stop, you know, uh, reasons why not to use it, um, and treating them similarly to a younger patient. And many of our older patients have, you know, decades left to live. So and, and anyway, sorry, Una. Us, no, it's important for us as healthcare 
a kind of healthcare, healthcare team or physicians to change and work on changing this concept because they're also very inherent to patients and patients have the same concerns of like, no, that's up. You know, now that we're talking about like, again, GCA, I use this as an example, but uh, tocilizumab and injectable medication and people get super concerned about it, but we know now the benefits and how we, the steroid sparing effects and that conception of like, oh, I'm, I'm maybe too old for this medication because injectable, it's gonna be too hard. That is something that we have the data. So we need to kind of clear some concepts to rely on the data, educate ourselves, but educate our patients as well. So in the last couple of minutes that I have, um, I'm just gonna go around to everybody. If you can tell me what's the most important thing our viewers need to know, what kind of initiatives you're having. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, this will highlight this topic and just really allow us to learn more. So Una, you wanna start? Sure, uh, I'd like to, two points and that is you know to to really get to know your patient um as they are growing older and recognize some of the unique aspects of aging through the five m's and i think that the five m's are it's really a brilliant streamlined approach that you can integrate into a busy practice um and then um secondly you know please do come to some of our ACR um, aging community hub activities. They are all audio recorded and we've had wonderful discussions about ageism and identifying our own biases as we um, take care of aging patients. We also have symposia focused on multi-complexity. Tomorrow we have a symposium on frailty. All of these are really um, um, designed in an effort to educate our, our rheumatology colleagues on these important concepts. Catherine, you want to go next? Sure. Um, first, I'd say for our colleagues to, I think we, we treat diseases really well. We're taught to do that. We, we know our medications. Um, but just to add one new tool to your toolkit, you know, as you can, as you have the space, um, really focusing. I, I find that I have themes as I go through my clinics. You know, this is the theme of the next six months as I'm getting everyone's bone health up to snuff as I see them. Um, really just trying to push yourself as a provider. Um, and then, and from a patient standpoint, continue to advocate for the things, making sure that you're heard, I guess, making sure that your, you know, hopes, dreams, desires, and your plan is heard by your provider. Um, sometimes we get a little bit, you know, hyper-focused because we're rheumatologists and we're really concerned about your primary disease. But, you know, if your medications are making you not functional or if something else is coming up, just making sure that you're you're heard. Because I know all of us rheumatologists, we, we care about our patients deeply. Sometimes we just have our blinders on. Sebastian. Uh, I think we know who our patients are. And, and this is something that it that goes way beyond and covers all the different specific disease silos of, of rheumatology and how we behave. And we have fortunately in our group people that are in DRA and uh, kind of lupus and vasculitis. So uh, Jer I guess Jerry Room is here to stay <laughs> and uh, and we look forward to grow growth in the community as well. And for anyone interested, I'm gonna make the pitch that we have a, a joint email for, uh, for our group. It's jerryroom at gmail.com. Fabulous. Deviani, I'm gonna let you close this out. <laughs> All right, so remember, elderhood is, is the third phase of life. It, it may be different, no less, no more. And aging is physiologic. So 
uh, at the stage of elderhood, you may have graying of hair and wrinkling of skin, but treat your patient, not just your disease. Beautifully stated. So this is Dr. Catherine Dow. I want to thank my panel here for sharing with us information about how to take care of the older rheumatic disease patient. Um, continue to follow us on Twitter, read our blogs on roomnow.com. <laughs>